As we come back to the Word of God today, we are in Haggai chapter 2, as Ben read just a moment ago. And we kind of began a short journey through Haggai last Sunday. We looked at chapter 1, a time to build, and we spoke about what was going on there, that Haggai is this prophet of God who has been called by God to speak to the generation who's come back from the exile. They've been in Babylon, and they've been in Persia, and they're now coming back, as Cyrus has decreed, foretold long ago that this would be exactly what would happen, and they come back for the purpose of rebuilding the temple of God that God might be worshipped again, rightly, according to the way He is commanded. And so this is what happens. They come back, and yet 20 years after Cyrus has ordered this decree, the temple still lies in ruins. There was a, a beginning of the work when they first got back, not much done, and then they turned away from it. And so Haggai is called to say, why has this not been done? Now he says it ironically. They say uh, that they claim now is not the time to build the Lord's house. Now is not the time. We don't deny God has called us to do it. It's just not the time to do it. Now we argued that since the entire purpose of them going back to Jerusalem was to rebuild the temple, the sign they were waiting for was they're back in Jerusalem, right? It is the time to build. You are there and God has provided the means for you to build. He has had you take up a collection of gold and silver and livestock and all these things on the way out of exile back into the promised land. So God has provided the opportunity. You are there and He has provided the means to do it. And you haven't done it. And in fact, He begins to play on their excuse and says... Was it the right time to impanel your houses? The idea here with that word in the Hebrew is not that they simply dried in their house. That's kind of the wording we used last week. It wasn't just they had a place where they could reside. It's that they did all the finished carpentry work on their own house, saying it's not the right time to build the Lord's house, but it is time to appoint our house nicely. And God said, no, I called you back to build my house. That is your purpose for being here so get about it. And they hear this and receive this, and they begin the work, and everything is great. You may remember there was a warning in what Haggai said that everything else is going wrong. It hasn't been what you thought it would be because you've neglected the thing I've called you back to do. So what did he say? You sow constantly, you reap little. You eat, but you're never full. You drink, you're never satisfied with your drink. You have money, you put it in your pocket, or in a bag, right, this imagery, but it's never there when you come to get it because it's fallen out of the holes that are in what you kept it in. The idea is, no matter what you do, you can't overcome this loss. And this will continue, Haggai says, speaking on behalf of the Lord, until you get about the purpose for which I've called you back into the land, and that is for the rebuilding of my house as the symbol of the covenant and as a foreshadowing of the true person who comes representing God uh, amongst you, and that is, of course, Christ. We'll be looking at that a little bit more today. So I want to read this text one more time because we want to see what happens. They've begun building at the end of chapter 1. The work is beginning. How does it go? In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is it not in your eyes as nothing? 
Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place... I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Amen. What an amazing word we have there. And if you notice, as you walk through it over and over again, Haggai, speaking on behalf of God, refers to God as the Lord of hosts. We talked about that last Sunday. The Lord of all the armies of heaven. This is the God you serve. And so as we look at this text today, I want us to look at three quick points. First of all, a time of discouragement. Second of all, a word of encouragement. And lastly, a promise of glory. So beginning with this time of discouragement, we uh, find that this time in the text is not far removed from chapter 1. Chapter 1 is like three and a half weeks before chapter 2, if you go off the dates given of the message of, of Haggai. Just a short time. Enough time that they've begun the work, but not much time to get much of it done, right? We recognize that. So... What has been going on? Well, you can imagine if you just think about construction projects, there's been some planning and some surveying and some making sure you know what equipment you're going to need, some checklisting and plans drawn up and organizing of the people because you need to do all that before you can actually begin to build. And maybe like we read about in Ezra, they've begun to stake out some things. And in the process of this, they begin to realize that, hey, this is underway. This should be a time of joy, right? This should be a time of great excitement and encouragement. This should be a time of glory amongst the people that it's actually happening. And yet, the mood is very changed as we come to the text today. In fact, this is the reason that God sends Haggai to his people. There is something that has happened in the three and a half weeks since they were all revved up to begin this project. Now they're beginning to say there's a problem. And we can see what it is. Because it says in the text that there is a problem in which he is sent to speak not only to Zerubbabel and to Joshua, their leaders, but also to all the remnant of the people. We talked about this last week, this remnant of the people that God has preserved in exile and brought back into the land for his purpose. He's speaking to all of them. And he's got to give them a message of be strong, be encouraged, be of good cheer, be of heart in this process. Why? Because they've already become discouraged. Now you can imagine the younger generations who have come back into the land and those who were left in the land while others went into exile, they have never seen a standing temple. They have never seen it. They've heard about it. They've heard stories from their grandparents and maybe even their parents, but they have never seen it. They've heard, oh, you would not believe the glory. The temple stood in the middle of of our town up on Mount Moriah, it was glorious to see. Glorious. And there's nothing like that for you children today. They've heard these stories. So you can imagine again the excitement that should be there, and yet 
it seems that as they are laying out the design or the, the stakes for the new temple, discouragement falls from the heights of anticipation to the lows of depression and despair in just three and a half weeks. Now, this says something about human beings. We're easily discouraged. This is just the reality of our lives. We can be flying high one moment, and sometimes the smallest things seem to happen, and we can be discouraged. And the Lord uh, would remind us over and over that we are called to be an encouraged people, that we are to look at the promises and the hopes that we've been given to lift us out of our discouragement. In fact, we can find many scriptures on this. Spurgeon once said that discouragement is always a threat to the work of the Lord's people because it saps our strength. If you look at what happens in chapter 2 of Haggai, what do you find? The people have become weak. They've become discouraged. They've become weakened by this. But what's saddest of all about it is that this discouragement comes from the Lord's own people. I think they mean well in this case. If you look at the, the text, it says that it's the older generation who had seen the previous temple in all its glory that begin to say, eh, I don't think this one's ever going to be what the previous one was. Oh, don't get me wrong, this one's going to be good. But oh, if you could have seen the glory days. If you could have seen the one Solomon built. When we had unlimited gold, unlimited silver. When we had all the greatest building materials and God raised up artisans to build that temple to be everything that it was. Everything we've told you about. No, this one's going to be great. Don't get me wrong. But it won't be that one. It won't be what we had. My friends, I don't know about you, but this is a common thing, the way I think. Maybe it's the way you think. We always kind of pine after things that we've lost. We think about what's been lost. We don't think about what God is doing ahead. We get so trapped in the past that we are not even present in the moment that God is to use to do a great work. I think we see this here. These people are so focused on the blessings that they once had, they have no appreciation for what they now see God doing. And they become discouraged. If you look at it here for just a moment, you think about this. Just two decades before this, they're in captivity. Their only hope would be to be freed from that situation and allowed to go back to Jerusalem and to dream that one day there could be what they once had. Maybe it won't be as great in one sense, but... But hey, we could have a temple again. We could have a freedom again in our own land that God has given us. And we could worship Him as He's called us to do according to the covenant that He made with us at Mount Sinai. How glorious would that be? I think it had to be the dream of the people of Israel that we could go back asking forgiveness for all the mistakes we've made and repenting of the sins that we've done. We could go back and have something like what we had before. And yet here they are back. They get off to a good start and they're already discouraged. I do believe this speaks to us about how easily discouraged we can be. And yet this discouragement has robbed them of strength. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. But think about this. The message of God to them will be, be strong. Don't be weakened through discouragement. Be strengthened through encouragement. Because here's the thing. I'm calling you to do something of importance, God says. I'm calling you to do something that has an important aspect to it, which you'll come to understand over time. The message here is really to exhort one another. What the elder generation should have been doing was saying, don't worry about the temple that was. We get to have a temple again. We get to have this 
center place in our community that represents what God is doing amongst us, that He is present amongst His people, that there is sacrifice for our sins, there is mediation for our sins, that there is a high priest who intercedes on our behalf before God. All of that is important. And yet they got caught up on what they didn't have or what they thought they didn't have because it it just didn't seem that this could be as glorious as what they once had. Well, that brings us to our second point, because the Lord brings Haggai to bear to bring encouragement. And when you think about it for a moment, he's speaking to a people robbed of joy, robbed of strength, and his message is to do what? Well, he says some important things here. Look at these verses again. Speak now to these leaders and to the remnant. So notice he's speaking not only to the two leaders, but all the people who are present. And he asks this question that makes clear this is the problem. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? Notice, even though it's not yet rebuilt, he's speaking of it as the exact same temple in a sense. Because it holds the same place in the lives of the covenantal people of God. He says, who of you, who among you saw this temple before? This is many, many decades ago. A handful of people could raise their hand and say, I saw it in its former glory. And then look at what he asks. And how do you see it now? Of course, in ruins, right? I mean, that's the obvious thing. But even they're already looking forward to what it will be. They're already looking forward to what it will be. And what do you see it in comparison to the old? Is it not in your eyes as nothing? Think about that. Not lesser. Not diminished. Not, not as great as nothing. Now, I think when we look at that, it seems the older generation were completely dismissive of what God was doing now. Not just a little bit dismissive. They were like, it's nothing compared to what Solomon built. Now, this is the temple, the work that God is doing in the present, and you're dismissing it in that way. It's nothing. It's nothing. You know, we can be guilty of this. You know, God's doing some amazing thing in our lives. And maybe somebody goes, oh, that's nothing compared to what he did 10 years ago. Nothing at all. Not even worth considering compared to what he did in my father's generation or my grandfather's generation. My friends, don't despise the day of small things. God is at work. God is at work. And so again, this is the message to be encouraged to think about what God is doing. He encourages them to look at it once more, to take a new look at what God is doing. And he does so by calling them first to take strength. You see it there. Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the high, the high priest. And be strong, all ye people of the land. You can almost think about this as saying something like, take courage, take heart, stand firm, get about the business God has called you to be about. Be encouraged. How do we meet discouragement? By standing strong in the promise and word of God, recognizing that God is at work. He calls us to be part of it and to take our comfort in that. It may not look as great to us in the moment. It didn't look as great to them as what had already been. But God says, you can't judge what I'm doing based on the circumstances. You can't judge what I'm doing based on your assessment of it in the present. We could look at many examples of that. Read about Charles Simeon. And I think it was his first 20 years 
at the church. This man who now goes down as one of the greatest pastors in history. There was a, a feud over, over his ministry there. And back in those days, you've probably seen these older churches where there's actually doors on the end of pews. And you had a key to them. You could lock them. Each family had a pew. They locked up the pews and left. No one could sit down in the Lord's house unless you climbed over the pew, which people didn't do. Goes down as one of the greatest pastors in history. You can't judge in the present moment what God is at work to do. We have to recognize that. That's clear in this case. They're judging this is not as impressive a temple. I guess it wasn't physically. I guess it wasn't. But God says, have you considered what I'm going to do with it? So take courage, take heart, be strong in this moment, stand against discouragement, be encouraged, and get to work. If you look at verse 5, he reminds them of something else. He's still the same God who called them in covenant to be His people. He says, do this, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. Oh, that's a reference we know. Those glory days with Moses, where God, by the might of His arm, conquered the Egyptians, led the people out of slavery by the might of His hand, and took them through the Red Sea and through the desert and across the Jordan into the Promised Land. What more glorious days could we talk about than those days with Moses, the days where God set the people apart as a special people unto Himself? Covenantally, He says, Would you have thought those were glory days if you had been there? The people didn't seem to, did they? They grumbled and complained the entire time. I'm tired of this manna. Can't we have something else? There's never enough water. Did you bring us into the desert to die? Were there not enough graves in Egypt? Now they look back and those were the the greatest evidences of how God worked in favor of His people. But at the time, what would you have said? At the time, you would have been with those saying, we should go back to Egypt. I hope you wouldn't have said that, but maybe you would have. The point is this. They couldn't foresee, and they didn't have the temple in those days either, did they? They had the tabernacle, which you packed up and took with you along the way. They didn't have the finished glorious temple that Solomon built. They had the tabernacle, which God had appointed, but which pointed to a future day where there would be a temple. It was David who said, It's not right that I dwell in a paneled house of cedar. And the Lord's Ark of the Covenant resides under a tent. It's not right. He desired to build a house. The Lord said, no, it's not for you to build me a house, David. I will build you a house. Solomon, your son, shall build the temple. And he did. So in those glory days under Moses, they didn't have the temple either. Yet you recognize that God was at work to do something more glorious. Why can't that be the case now? The same God... The same covenant He made with you, the same place of His abiding presence amongst His people that reminds us of your need for sacrifice and intercession and mediation. All of that, God is saying, has an important place in your life. Get about it. Get about it. Be strong. And remember what I have done for you in the past. And then God reminds them of what He will do yet to come. For this says the Lord of hosts, Once more, it is but a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations. Man, only God can do that. Shake everything that exists. 
He doesn't mean this in the prophetic way of destruction or judgment. He means he's going to shake them to do his will, to build his temple. Now, there's going to be a couple of ways we have to understand this, which we'll come to in a moment. But he says, you can trust this. And then if you really want to be encouraged, he tells them, Haggai, on behalf of God, says, that older generation that's telling you that the temple that you're building is nowhere near as magnificent as the one they once saw, they're wrong. They're wrong. For the glory of the latter will be greater than the glory of the former. Now, there's a couple of ways we can understand that as well. Right? That temple stands there for hundreds of years. It's rebuilt. Herod spends many, many years working on that temple so that it's a debate amongst the Jews whether or not the, the second was maybe even greater than Solomon's temple. But that isn't really what he's getting at here, is it? He's not simply arguing this physical temple you rebuild will be of greater glory one day. No, he's saying the purpose of this second temple and its place in the eschatological work that I am doing is going to have greater glory. Now, we can see this in many different ways, but it brings us to this final point of the promise of a greater glory. Because it's here. This temple will have a glory attached to it that even the old one didn't have. The nations are going to be shaken to to bring forth the goods to build this temple. That's true physically, but it's also true spiritually, right? Also true typologically, that the point here ultimately is the work or the place that this second temple will have is greater than the place the first one had. Why? Because it's in this temple that the Lord of the temple will come. He will enter into this temple physically. This temple, which is a type of Him anyway. Right? The temple represents what? The abiding presence of God amongst His people. And yet Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Christ goes in and looks around the temple. Jesus looks around the temple after He enters in the triumphal entry. And so we have Christ in this temple, but it points to Him and the work He did. Who is the perfect sacrifice? It's not something that happens inside the temple. The temple points to it. It is Christ. Who is the perfect mediator? Cue all of our sermons in Hebrews, right? All of our sermons in Hebrews. That's the point. It points to the one who will come and be the fulfillment of all of this typology. Everything that was given to you, Israel, was to point you to Jesus. Jesus. That's the greater glory that's coming. That this temple will point to. That this temple is necessary to have until He comes. For there will be sacrifices and mediation, intercession, until the one comes who is the perfect sacrifice, perfect mediator, perfect intercessor. That's the glory that will come. And when you recognize that, then you begin to see different ways of looking at the layers in this text of the one who will come who is the desire of nations. Some of the newer translations put that in plural. It can be interpreted either ways. It's a little bit complicated. But the point is this. That means something like the elect of the nations. But we also know traditionally the church has seen the desire of nations as being Christ also. That He is the one looked upon by all the nations who all the nations are drawn to. The point here is there is a soteriological movement that God is at work to bring about that is pointing to Christ. It is Christ who will come. It is Christ who is the ultimate one who stands 
as the God-man, the salvation offered to us. And so, my friends, there's a reminder here. Don't be discouraged by the look of the temple now. There are many times, if you'd looked at what God is doing, it wouldn't have looked very impressive. How many times do we hear this, even of Jesus himself? That he wasn't much to look at. His story didn't make sense to people. How could he be born in a, in a manger? How could he be born in Bethlehem? Shouldn't he be born in Jerusalem as the king of the Jews? Could he really be from Nazareth? Does anything good come from Nazareth? This one that we're listening to, this is the Messiah? My friends, we see it over and over again. God chooses to work in this way over and over again. He uses the weak things to put to shame the strong things. And here again, they're looking upon this physical temple and saying, it's too small. It's too unimpressive. And God says, if only you knew what I was at work to do. Enjoy you would be at work. Enjoy realizing that all this will be fulfilled in short time. Maybe a long time in, in our estimation, but in a short time in God's estimation. He will bring His only begotten Son into the world who will go to Calvary's cross that we might have life. And so he says, take heart and take strength and get about the Lord's work. My friends, I don't think we have to work very hard to find the connection to us, right, on this. It's easy for us to be discouraged. It's easy for us to to be unimpressed in the moment with what it seems God is doing. And God says, be at work. Be of good courage, of good heart, of cheer. Be strong in the moment and work. Trusting God that He has it in His hands. And He is doing things according to His plan for His glory. Amen.